comes from Matthew 5:43 to 48. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we ask you, as we look at this passage of Scripture today, in the teaching of Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, we ask you that you would open our eyes, that we would behold your love in fresh and new ways, and that we'd be reminded of the depth of your love in old and ancient ways, for you are ever lasting and unchanging. We ask you that we would grab a hold of who you are in ways that would transform us and transform the way that we're living. And so we ask you, God, that you would open our ears, that we would hear the truth that's here, that you give us hearts to believe, and Lord, even a will to resolve to obey you in the teaching of Jesus here. Father, we cannot do this on our own. We thank you that you've made a way in Christ and that you've empowered us by your Holy Spirit. So we pray now, come Holy Spirit, strengthen us and empower us as we seek to serve you. Help us to hear your word now in Jesus' name, amen. I think this passage is probably the most unreasonable thing that Jesus ever said. At the very same time, I think this passage gives us the means to completely solve and eradicate racism and classism and sexism. While at the very same time, I think it gives us what we need to come against destructive types of nationalism and political divisions and all forms of prejudice that we've ever experienced in our lives. In fact, I think the core of this passage which is the command to love our neighbors and to pray for those who persecute us, pardon me, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. I think that it is so full of transformative love that if we have ears to hear it, and as I just prayed, hearts to believe it, and if we have a will resolved to obey it, I think it can change us and then change the world. Not to overstate the importance of the passage. Verse 43 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. This passage was one of the central key teachings of Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement of the late 50s and 1960s. He taught on this passage many times. On one occasion, he taught this passage on November 17th, 1957. And in teaching it on that day, he said this. He said, certainly these are great words. Words lifted to cosmic proportions. And over the centuries, many persons have argued that this is an extremely difficult command. This command to love our enemies. Many would go so far as to say that it isn't just impossible, it isn't possible to move out into the actual practice of this glorious command. They would go on to say that this is just an additional proof that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. So the arguments abound. 
But far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus has become the practical realist. The words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization, love even for our enemies. This is the message of one who was assassinated by his enemies. Imperfect as we all are, Martin Luther King Jr. fought for something. It was very much in line with the teaching of the gospel of Jesus. It was very much in line with this passage of scripture. It was very much in line with the totality of the Bible and the way that we're called to love one another. I think this passage gives us the means to completely solve and eradicate racism and classism and sexism and at the same time to come against destructive nationalism, political divisions, and all forms of prejudice that we have ever experienced in this life. Love your enemies is an unreasonable statement. And I think statements like this that are unreasonable from Jesus have the power to transform. Half-hearted messages of the status quo have never transformed a single human heart, but being loved by an enemy can change a person. And I would say, loving your enemy can change you. What we need to hear in a world that is full of pain and division, where it's easy for our world to get smaller and smaller as we just cut ties with all the people who don't look like us and talk like us and read the same books as us and who don't vote like us and who don't go out for the same causes that we go out for. Our world just gets smaller and smaller as we just sort of silence all of those external voices in our life that would differ from the way that we see the world. Our world gets smaller. See, what we need to hear actually is that the basis of this thing that we call Christianity is that we have been saved by a man who died loving his enemies. See, if we're only, as a church, if we're only going to love people who believe the same things we believe and who fit into the neat and tidy categories that we've created, we are, we are going to end up hating a lot of people God loves. And if we hate people who God loves, we prove that we are still in love with that which God hates. So here's the question. Are you going to follow the way of Jesus? Are we going to follow the way of Jesus? Way of Jesus is a cruciform path. It is cross-shaped. It is about laying down your life that he might take it up. It's about new life that comes from death. It's about living our life in light of who God is, what he's done, dying to ourselves that we might live to him for the benefit of others. The way of Jesus is somewhat unreasonable. The way of Jesus is unreasonable in the sense that it says you cannot limit your love to those that you deem worthy of love because God's love for you in Christ knows no bounds. The way of Jesus is not reasonable. It's way better than that. See, God's grace to us in Christ is not reasonable. If it was reasonable, it would determine that it would it would would say that we deserve it in some way. It would 
reveal that we have earned something. Grace is not reasonable. God's grace to us in Christ is completely unreasonable. It's undeserved. And it's then our reception of love and grace in Christ that transforms our heart and that we would love and extend grace in the same way even to our enemies. So four points as we look through the text today. Who are we called to love? How are we called to love? Why are we called to love? And what kind of community can actually do this? Who are we called to love? How are we called to love? Why are we called to love? And then what kind of community can actually do this? So first, who are we called to love? Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. I, the, the bit about love your neighbor, all over the Bible, to be clear. The bit about hating your enemy, not in the Bible. Douglas Sean O'Donnell said, The command to love one's neighbor comes from Leviticus 19.18. The addition and hate your enemy comes from, hmm, let me see, nowhere in the Bible. But it does come quite naturally from the human heart. Oh, it's one of those sermons. Okay, it's one of those passages, kind of like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. There's no biblical command to hate your enemy, but because of the brokenness of the world and the hardness of the human heart toward others, this may be an unbiblical inevitability that we have to fight against, but, but hate your enemy is not a biblical idea. It may be a perversion of a biblical idea, but it is not in and of itself a biblical idea. John Stott was quoting uh, Charles Spurgeon. He said, the words and hate your enemy were a parasitical growth. Love that imagery. A parasitical growth upon God's law. They had no business there. God did not teach his people a double standard of morality, one for a neighbor and another for an enemy. See, there's no two standards of God's love. There's no two classes. It's God's love in the way that we are called to love others. There's no distinction made. We need to realize that part of the origin of this misunderstanding, it actually comes from wrongly defining the word neighbor, which is something that we see all the way through the Bible, even to the point where there's people who come to Jesus and they go, so who's our neighbor? Right? Like, it's the way that some of you have asked some of your friends, your community group leaders, perhaps even some of the pastoral team, who is my neighbor? And I'm not assuming that this is what you're thinking in it. I'm just telling you my projection of what I think you're thinking, because it's what I think. Is my neighbor like directly across the street or just the ones adjacent to me? Like when I'm standing at my front door and I look out the window, do I need to love my neighbor directly across the street or, or like diagonal as well? How about the back alley? Do I cross the back alley in terms of neighborliness? Does that, does that count? There's people that come to Jesus and ask, who is my neighbor? Because they're trying to figure out what the least amount of, you know, the lowest level standard that they can do. Who is my neighbor? I want to understand. Now, there's probably some good motives in there too. I want to know who my neighbor is, that I might love them well according to the commands of scripture to love my neighbor. I get it. But we need to realize that part of the misunderstanding here comes from wrongly defining neighbor. Scott McKnight says this about the world that Jesus was living in. He said the word neighbor 
means one's fellow human being with whom one has some kind of relationship. Next door neighbor, fellow townsperson, person in the adjacent village, government official who works in your community, etc. But the term was usually exclusively viewed as one's fellow Jewish compatriot. Hence, neighbor often lacked any sense of diversity. This is where Jesus alters the meaning of the term. He is saying in that world, the definition of neighbor generally lacked diversity. I'm sure you don't know what that is like. (laughs) It's difficult to sometimes develop a diverse understanding of community. The Church of Jesus is one of the places that happens. There's still walls that need to come down. See, basically, the understanding that prevailed in the days of Jesus was that your neighbor was somebody who was just like you, who thought like you, who was aligned with the people that you aligned yourself with. Your neighbor to them was somebody of your own race, your own social status, and your religious worldview. It's a pretty narrow definition of neighbor. But it was what they were living into in the days of Jesus. So what Jesus is doing here is he's contradicting their wrong understanding of a neighbor and he's correcting the distortion of the law that they would allow themselves to hate somebody and think that that was biblical, if I could say it that way. Like I said, there were people who came and asked Jesus, who who was my neighbor? Jesus answered the story. Even some of you who are not followers of Jesus who maybe aren't as familiar with the scriptures, you probably heard of the Good Samaritan. In Luke's gospel, Jesus answers them and and he tells this parable of the Good Samaritan. He tells them a story about somebody who has been beaten and left for dead and some stranger who comes upon them, and even though they're not of the same ethnic world, probably not the same socioeconomic status, and perhaps not even the same religious worldview, that person takes care of them and says, that is the neighbor. To summarize that is to say, our neighbor is not necessarily a member of our own race, social status, or religious worldview. In fact, our neighbor may be a stranger who we have no connection to other than proximity at some point. In fact, our neighbor may even be our enemy. So what makes them our neighbor? Well, in Jesus' parable, they're a fellow human being in need. And we're called to love them irrespective of whatever we think could possibly divide us or put us at odds. So that's part of where this came from. It's a wrongly def- uh, wrong definition of neighbor. It's really narrowly defined as same race, same social status, same religious worldview. And with that understanding of neighbor, that narrowly defined understanding, you can likely then end up with some kind of idea that there are then groups you can justify hating. And that's what had evidently happened in the time of Jesus. Now, this is just a quick point for all of the archaeological nerds here. So both of you will love this. (laughs) But we know that that this was part of the cultural understanding of, of the Old Testament brought into that current moment in time. We know that this was part of the cultural understanding, not just because Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. We actually know that there was some writing around that time in history that was discovered in the 1940s, 1950s in some caves at a place called Qumran, which is on the north shore of the Dead Sea. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in a community rule there, there's actually some statements written there by a Jewish sect called the Essenes. And they say that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's written right there. 
We know that it was a cultural understanding in Jesus' day. Jesus is not here in the sermon building up a straw man that he's just going to knock down, something that doesn't exist, that's just there for the point of his argument. He's actually saying, look, all of you in the culture around us, you have believed this. You have heard this. I'm telling you it's a wrong understanding of the Old Testament. It's a wrong understanding of the guidelines on how we're to live and love others, and I'm trying to correct it. So Jesus contradicts this wrong-headed understanding of the law that's misapplied to relationships, and he brings the corrective word. He says in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He goes on to say in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And what if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This is Jesus just throwing shade at the people that believed they could hate their enemies, okay? He says, tax collectors, which basically they thought were, I don't know, like kind of, what's the nice way to say it? Sell out Jews who are working for the government and extorting their own people. That was what they thought of tax collectors. What they thought of Gentiles where they were sort of pagan dogs that were outside of the covenant of God's love. And I'm not saying everybody would have held that view, but pervasive cultural understanding at the time, and that's why Jesus is using it, he's he's saying even the tax collectors love people that love them. Even the Gentiles do that. So even the people that you look down on are doing this, and you're not. He says in verse 47, what more do you do? as though there's a higher ethic of love in the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't forget, Jesus would not have been talking about this if this was not a problem in his culture. Jesus is deconstructing an unbiblical view of love and a narrow definition of neighbor. He's standing up, and you've got to think, the Sermon on the Mount. He stands up, he's preaching a sermon, he's got his disciples at his feet, he's got the crowds around him, and he stands up and he proclaims this new kingdom manifesto as he speaks to his new kingdom people. He is proclaiming what it's like to understand the love of God in his kingdom. Jesus is proclaiming this, but he understands the cultural issues of the day. He's redefining who people are called to love. Now, if you were used to living in the you had heard it said bit of love your neighbor but hate your enemy, if you were used to that, this sounds completely unreasonable. Love your enemies? Who is this hippy-dippy preacher from Galilee? Love your enemies, nonsense. be very easy to dismiss it. Until you see how he loves. So the question is, who are we called to love? Well, from the text so far, um, your neighbor, your enemy, and those who persecute you. So as defined by Jesus, um, everybody. Who are you called to love? Everybody. Like, okay. Everybody except that person who just came to mind. Nope. (laughs) Nice try. Everybody except, mm, no. Everybody except people who disagree with me and because I'm right, I don't have to agree with them. You don't have to agree with them. You just have to love them. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's warming up in here. You don't have to agree with them. You just have to love them. Well, that person has an incorrect ideological worldview. You probably, maybe, but you got to love them. 
Did you see how that person was driving? Yeah, and he had a Jesus fish on his bumper. No, that's why I don't have one. <laughs> Love them. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy is easy. Everybody can do that. Love your enemy, that you need the power of the Holy Spirit provided to you because of the love of the Father who sent the Son to die in your place and reconcile you in an eternal relationship. You need the love of the Father poured out, Romans 5, 5, by the Holy Ghost. (laughs) You need the Holy Spirit. There's a story from Corey Ten. I preached long in the first, and I didn't tell any of these stories. So let's see how this goes. Corey Ten Boom was in a concentration camp, and one of the guards came and said, would you forgive me? And she saw her sister suffer and die. And the guard said, would you forgive me? And her immediate thought was her suffering sister who died. And she just said out loud, God, my father, I cannot forgive this person on my own, but I know that the power of the Holy Spirit in my heart from you, Father, will empower me to do this. And so the love of God in me, I can forgive. You can also love your enemy. You don't have to agree with them. So who are you having a hard time loving? And who are the enemies that you're tempted to hate? Now, before you start making the list, right, with all the things that I've just said, or, you know, the, the boss that won't get good coffee in the break room but wants to talk about loose leaf tea, which is gross, or the, the, you know, the neighbor who lives upstairs and uh, well, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Tea is defilement of my coffee cup in Jesus' name. And if you disagree, you still have to love me. <laughs> you know, your neighbor who plays stupid, you know, 90s pop music upstairs really loud. Like, don't, don't make that list yet until you see this. Look at verse 50, uh, 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, that's a plural you. Again, the translation committee, please hear me, y'all. But I say to y'all, love your plural enemies and pray for those who persecute you, plural. It's a communal thing. You can't read this as an individual only. You read it as an individual who is part of a collective whole. So we're not just talking about people you are tempted to hate. We're talking about people we are tempted to hate. It's not about me. It's about us. So who do we have a hard time loving? Who are the enemies that we are tempted to hate? Let me say that for the Jewish people Jesus was talking to, as much as I understand the first century context and as much as I understand the New Testament and some of the historical stuff written around it, here's what I would say. I'm going to give you five people that would have been very easy for them to hate in that era. First, it would have been other Jews who disagreed with them. So there were sects within Judaism. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and a couple other little splinter groups that don't make the top three. It would have been very easy to hate people who you thought read the Bible differently than you. You're like, oh, I know where this is going. Second, uh, the pagan religions around them who worshipped other gods. Very easy to hate them. Especially if you narrowly defined neighbor. Third, the irreligious people around who just had really, really loose social values and had different social... Um, who had different opinions and convictions on social issues with regard to things like sexuality, infanticide, that kind of thing. Fourth, it would have been very easy to hate the non-Jewish ethnicities around them. And so when they were out and traveled around into other places, it would have been very very easy for them as a community, especially with a narrow definition of the word neighbor, to despise people who were not Jewish. 
something that they struggled with. The fifth thing, it would have been easy to hate the Roman occupiers. They were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. They were occupied in Jerusalem and in the area, and so they were under the rule of the empire who limited their freedoms and what they could do. They had a lot of freedom, but it was still limited, and they did not like the Romans, which is why they didn't like the tax collectors who were working for the Romans. We've got sectarian hatred within their faith. We've got religious hatred for other world religions. We've got social issue hatred for people who have different convictions on social issues. We have racial hatred for people who are from other ethnicities. And we have political hatred for those who may or may not be in office who are occupying them at the time. Sectarian hatred, religious hatred, social issue hatred, racial hatred, and political hatred. And because none of these are applicable to us, I can just move on, right? Sectarian hatred. I'll start with the pastoral sin on the list. Actually, all these are pastoral sin on the list. The Presbyterians can't handle the Charismatics, and the Charismatics think the Baptists are too rigid, and they all think the Roman Catholics are wrong, and the Anglicans are not on one side or the other enough to be liked by either. The Eastern Orthodox are weird. The Ukrainian Orthodox are weird. The Russian Orthodox are weird. The Coptic Church is strange. And we look at all of it and just lob grenades at each other over the you know, 10 or 15% of things we disagree on instead of kind of gathering around in a really beautifully unified way on the 85% of things we actually agree on. Sectarian hatred. Probably stop there. (laughs) Religious hatred. Other world religions. We sit here today as followers of Jesus. So we can have a hard time dealing with Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, atheism, new ageism. We can be tempted to hate people who don't believe what we believe. Social issue hatred. Different convictions on social issues. Um, You know, my inbox hasn't filled up with people who are angry for a while, so I'll talk about abortion. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in history. You know that statistically, a couple major world wars, other conflicts around the world, a lot of people died. A lot, the more people died in that century than in any other century. Some of those things were called crimes against humanity. Um, six million Jews were exterminated by the Nazi regime in World War II. Uh, three million people died in Joseph Stalin's gulags, like work camp prisons. Three million people died there. Uh, One million people died in the the Rwandan genocide that happened in the 90s. It's just three. Six million, three million, one million. That's 10 million just in those three that are commonly labeled and agreed upon by virtually everyone that they were crimes against humanity. 10 million. In the last 50 years, just in North America, 60 million babies have been aborted. six times the number of three commonly understood crimes against humanity. It's about 100,000 a year, between 80 and 100,000 a year in Canada. The number is 10 times that in the United States of America because their population is 10 times our population. I cannot hate 
the proponents and perpetrators of abortion. Though I believe it's murder, no problem saying that, I can't hate them. I can pray for them. I can love them. I can say I don't think you share the same understanding as I do about what a life is and the value of a life, but I can love you and I can pray for you. So when's the last time we stopped and prayed for people of other faiths who are putting Christians to death around the world? When's the last time we stopped and prayed for churches that are lobbing little mini Christian grenades at our church? Just pray for them. When's the last time we tried to love them? When's the last time we tried to love the people who are doing things that we think are immoral and wrong, unjustified, ungodly, and at the end of the age will be judged? We can still love them. Racial hatred. I grew up in one of the most racist parts of Canada. And I grew up in one of the most anti-racist homes that I know, period. I think partly my mother would slap the racism off your face if you uttered a racist slur in my household. And part of it came from the fact that her mother's native. She experienced racism her whole life. Do I love people who don't look like me, whose pigment in their skin is a different color than mine? Do I love them? It's such a basic thing. Are they my neighbor? Political hatred. Again, the political discourse in our culture is so calm and civil that I probably don't need to speak to this, but I can maybe just highlight it for a moment. You may or may not have voted for the people who are in power and enacting their policies, and that does not mean you can hate them. So stop it online, Christians. Stop it. It's embarrassing. You might be right. I might even agree with you. No one cares what you think. They care how it sounds, what you're saying. And you bear the marks of Jesus. You bear the name of Christian. Stop it. And stop losing your witness over uncivil dialogue about political stuff that doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Sectarian hatred, religious hatred, social issue hatred, racial hatred, political hatred. Again, not that applicable to us, so I'll go. Who are we called to love? Uh, That was a really long way of saying everybody, by the way. Also, my final three points won't be as long as the first. Who are we called to love? Everybody. How are we called to love them? That sounds like a cheer. Who are we called to love? (laughs) How are we called to love them? I needed some levity because you all got real serious on me. I think I'm not on social media right now, but I think some of you might have been convicted about that. I'm just saying. Stop texting me about it too and emailing me about it. I don't care. I love you. (laughs) I love you. I might disagree with you. I might agree with you, but I love you. How are we called to love them? I, this is, I could just sort of linger there and it would be fun for me, but it would not be comfortable for you. Matthew five forty three. you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm not going to say a whole bunch on how we're called to love people. What I would say is this. I have a really hard time hating people that I spend a lot of time praying for. When I pray for them, God gives me his heart for them. 
in Luke chapter 6, which is the Sermon on the Plain. It's Jesus preaching this same sermon in a different location at a different time. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So what does he say? Love, do good, bless, and pray. And can I remind us that Jesus died on the cross while praying for his enemies and for those who had just crucified him. He, he died praying for his enemies. So we pray, we bless, and we do good. That's how we love. That's how we love. We pray, we bless, we do good. Can I just ask, like, what if it, what it look like if hundreds of people from Christ City today, this week, today, though, made a decision, maybe some of you, that you are going to identify a person or a group in this city who has been particularly difficult for you to love. You may even call them an enemy in some way, and you're going to today pray for them, speak blessing over them, and say, I bless you in Jesus' name. I pray you have a good day. I pray that you find joy. I pray that you have success. I pray good things for you. Pray for them and bless them, and then do something good for them, and get them their favorite drink this week, and their name will be on the cup, because that's probably where you're going to order it, but don't write some scripture verse or something on it and say, just slide it in there. Don't do that. Just do it with no expectation of reciprocity, just to do good. Pray for them and bless them and do something good for them. Number one, it messes with people, and it's so fun. It's so fun. So It, it does. But what if that person's not loved? Like anywhere. And maybe the way they're acting is because they do not understand love because they've never experienced it. And what if you're the only person in their life who follows Jesus who has been commanded to love them? If I get six random acts of kindness sent my way this week, I'm going to be upset with you, just so you know. Too. Okay? Just love somebody who disagrees with you. Okay? Don't love, don't love me that way. Just bless you, Brett, in Jesus' name. That's who we're called to love. Who? Everybody. How are we called to love them? Do good. Bless them. Pray for them. Okay. Why are we called to love them? Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I want to highlight two main reasons why Christians should love their enemies and do good to them. Two main reasons. First, we want to love like God loves. Because when we do, it reveals something of his glory to the watching world around us. The command to love our enemies is unreasonable. And the way that God loves us does not make sense but it reveals something to the watching world around us about the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of God our Father when we love people. It says, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You could also look at this verse and say, so that you may be like your Father in heaven. The focus here isn't on attaining a relationship or becoming a child of God in that way, but rather the focus here is on being the kind of person who shares in the characteristics of God himself because he or she is already in relationship with them. So it's something that you, basically you're living out of who you already are. 
It's not a so that that's sort of a reward thing, like you do this and you get that. When it says so that in verse 45, it says so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven or so that you may be like your father in heaven. When we look at it that way, we recognize that it's not sort of a tit for tat. I did this and now I get something out of it. The the so that is not a reward for merit. It's a word of motivation that really we can live into what's already promised. We can live into who we already are in relationship to him. We can emulate him to the world around us. We can image him to the world around us. So we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because we want to live into this reality that we're in relationship with him and that we want to show the world how he loves us. And it says in verse 45, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Hey, this is what's generally called common grace. I think it's really important. It's a big deal. It's indiscriminate love. It's love that's common for all people in all places, in all times, in all history, in all creation. It's not salvific grace. It's common grace. It's grace that every single human being experiences. Um, On family day, I was driving in the car. By the way, I got the sling off, right? So I was a passenger on Monday, and now I'm a driver again. And and, and so I'm, which I'm not a good passenger. And you can imagine. And... It seems like you can imagine too easily. That's all I'm saying. <clears throat> Allison's driving, and I'm looking out the window, and uh, I see people just smiling and walking, and the sun is shining, and people are playing with their kids, and people are playing in the park with their friends, and riding bikes on the seawall, and going for runs because I don't. They hate themselves, and but they're all they smiling. Everybody's smiling, and I thought to myself, how gracious of God to give us a, a long weekend just full of sun, and a common grace. It's enjoyed by people who don't love Him. That's how he loves. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. The crops of the unjust grow the same way the crops of the just grow. So when Christians live this way, we're showing something of what God is like. Um, Donald Hagner said, to love one's enemies is then to treat them as God treats those who have rebelled against him. Thus, the children, the disciples, should imitate their heavenly father. He extends grace and love. And don't forget, it says in Romans 5, in verse 6, that while we were still weak, yet at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It says in verse 8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says in verse 10, kind of an exclamation point on this, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? See, we love our enemies because God loved us while we were yet his enemies. second reason why is that the hearts of Christians are satisfied with God and are not driven with cravings for revenge and we're free to love and pray for those who hate and persecute us. The the go-to person on this idea is John Piper. In all of his writing, all of his books say the exact same thing from every different topic. He's got one message. He says that. God has become, this is what he says, God has become our all-satisfying treasure, and so we don't treat our adversaries out of our own sense of need and insecurity, but out of our own fullness with the satisfying glory of God. See, why we love people like this? Because we are so satisfied with who he is and who we are in him that we don't need to fight. 
we can love. See, both these reasons for loving our enemies, we we see the same thing. God is shown to be who he really is as a merciful and loving God, but, but also, as Piper says, it shows that his people are all satisfied in him. There's something going on. We're filled to fullness with him. We don't then need to go get or exact revenge. We can love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. So who are we called to love? It's everybody. How are we called to love? Well, we do good, we bless, we pray. Why are we called to love? Well, it's a display of God's glory and our satisfaction in him. Puts it on display. Fourth, I want to just quickly ask what kind of community can do this? Um, Like I said in this passage, all the you, Y-O-U, yous in verses 44 to 48 are plural. He's talking to a community. He's speaking to the new kingdom community, and he's rolling out his new kingdom manifesto here in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to ask, what kind of community can love like this? How about a perfect one? Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you all quit the program. I can't do that. It's too hard. I can't be perfect. Yeah, me either. Now, I don't do this often, maybe a couple times a year in total. But I'm going to suggest that perfect is not, perhaps, the best English word that we could use translating out of the original Greek. And the reason I do this very sparingly, one, is that I have great confidence in the English translation of the Bible that we have, but two, is that I don't want to undermine your confidence in it by saying that I think this is the wrong word, and three, I don't want to be that guy. Nobody likes that guy. There's people who study their whole life on how to translate things, and then you get some punk like me who just stands up and goes like, ah, well, my preferable translation would be, I just don't want to be that guy, but I think I need to be that guy in this one, okay? Because if, if you have the understanding that you need to be perfect as your father is perfect, you're going to quit. That idea of perfection has done damage to the church of Jesus over the ages for two reasons. One, because people look at it and go, well, then none of this looks like something we can actually accomplish. And so I don't have to try to live the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is just there to show me how much I need God because I can't do any of it. That's a real interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount that has been going on for ages. Part of it's based on verse 48 and the idea of being perfect. The other side of it is that you think that perfect, if it's a goal that God gives you, you actually could attain it and you could live with some sort of moral perfection or sinlessness and then you go crazy trying to do it and you hate yourself when you can't. Look, if moral perfection was the goal or attainable, Jesus would not have taught his disciples how to repent of their sin in the next chapter, in the same sermon. That's not the point. I think the better way to talk about this perfect is to use the language of wholeness. Wholeness. Rather than perfect, I'd like to say whole. I'd like to say you therefore must be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. Now, if we look at text in the Old Testament that this is based on, and and I try and summarize it, we could look at it and say that it's dealing with the idea of wholeness or completeness, similar language that's used in the Old Testament that Jesus is teaching out of here. It's about giving oneself then wholeheartedly with a a mind of singular devotion. It's aiming at a singular goal in that way. And so it's like holiness, which is without mixture. It's single-mindedness in your serving of God and your obedience to his will. 
It's a wholehearted dedication that's demonstrated in obedience to God's will, which is basically the idea of walking in relationship with him. Um, one commentator makes the really helpful clarification that what he's talking about here is being blameless before God and being whole in that way as you seek to obey him. It's not being flawless before God. I think that's helpful. Perfection implies flawlessness. Wholeness implies blamelessness. And that's what we have in Christ. It's not moral perfection, but wholehearted orientation toward God. Jonathan Pennington has written much on this. It's very helpful if you're looking for somebody to engage with. But in the days of Jesus, as we've seen over these last six weeks, so we need to, first, we need to understand that verse 48 is summarizing what we've taught basically over the last number of weeks, ever since we were in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. What had happened is that holiness had become an external thing rather than an internal heart orientation. And so there were people who were like, keep your hands clean, but we're not worried about the heart. And so that's why we've seen over the last six weeks, it's all about the motivation and inclination of our heart in obedience to the scriptures. So just think back at this text. Go to Matthew five seventeen. It says, do not think, this Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, what is Jesus talking about? Well, he is aiming here at people who will take the scriptures lightly and then only worry about external obedience when their hearts are far from God. He's aiming at a deeper righteousness, namely that of a wholehearted orientation of your life toward God. So you could say, you could say perfection if you define it rightly, or in that sense, a wholeness, a singular devotion. He's talking about a new kind of person who will obey the original intent of the law with a God-oriented heart. And he gives us a seven-sided, full picture of what that looks like. He gives us this text that I just read, and then he gives us six further illustrations of what it looks like. And so first, we see that it's a person who takes the scriptures seriously, not only to do with the external actions, but the inclination of the heart. Not relaxing the commands of the law, but understanding them in their original intent. Secondly, it's a person who is not angry and murderous, but living in reconciled relationships. Third, it's a person who is not acting out in adulterous living and lustful intent, but a person who keeps themselves pure before God because their sexuality has something to do with their wholeness. Third, we look at the reality that divorce is antithetical to the gospel because our marriages point to the love of God and the relationship between Jesus and his church. Fifth, we look at oaths where we understand that you don't have to be the person who runs around saying, I promise, I promise, and I swear, I swear. You just are an honest person who does what they say they're going to do. Fifth, we would look at not repaying evil for evil. It's not an eye for an eye. You don't have to repay evil for evil. And then the sixth one is to love their enemies. 
So we reject anger. We put lust to death. We are faithful in marriage. We don't need to take an oath because we speak honestly. We reject the idea that we return evil for evil and we love our enemies. All because we take God's word seriously. Jesus is describing his new kingdom people and what it looks like to be whole. Be whole as your heavenly father is whole. So we're called to love everyone. How we're called to love them is by loving them, doing good, blessing them, praying for them. Why are we called to love them? It's a display of God's glory and our satisfaction in him. And what kind of community can do this? The community that's transformed by the love of God, who are whole in their being with a singular devotion and a focus on the Godward orientation of their hearts. Would you stand as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.